Wooshka Studios. Listeners are advised that this podcast contains coarse language and adult themes and is not suitable for younger ears. Hello, Jeremy speaking. Oh, hello, Jeremy. It's Matt Condon calling. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Thanks very much for calling me back. That's all right. I might be on a wild goose chase and I've been bothering you for no reason. But you have been referred to me as the expert I need to talk to first. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. Someone's been talking me up. <laughs> I've been investigating this particular uh, individual for many, many years. Um, he was convicted in 2017 of, of a triple murder of a woman called Barbara McCulkin and her two daughters in mm-hmm. January 1974, and he had this alleged private graveyard that has been a rumour since the 1950s to bury his victims. And um, so just courtesy of an old farmer in the region who is actually distantly related to O'Dempsey, he was prospecting in this particular forest and he came across what appeared to him to be a sequence of graves. I've telephoned Associate Professor Jeremy Austin of the University of Adelaide. Jeremy is one of Australia's foremost experts in the study of ancient or degraded human DNA, and his interest extends to murder victims. I need to know from him if the samples we have gathered from the possible gravesite at Morgan Park, just outside Warwick, might indicate human remains, and if so, Could science identify those victims? Could we finally find the McCulkin girls? The objective, if it's possible, is to get the the fragments and the soil samples tested. Is that just a highfalutin theory on my part? Uh, Yeah, I guess if if one or more human bodies have been buried in, you know, reasonably deep in soil, you'd expect to find intact bones, at least not lots of tiny fragments, even after 50 years, and particularly if you say it's like a clay sort of soil, yeah. then you'd, um, you'd even be even more convinced that you'd be actually finding, you know, whole um, intact skeletons or at least, you know, intact bones, yeah. not tiny, tiny fragments. Yeah, right, okay, so there was one object that the farmer found that to my naked eye looks like a portion of a tooth but what if we go on the hypothesis that and it's entirely realistic in fact it's probably probable that he had buried the victims and then removed them would there be would there be any trace of anything oh there yeah there could be i mean after 50 years he'd be clutching the straws that that would be human dna surviving from a decomposed body that was buried yeah, 50 years ago and that DNA survived uh, in the soil. It's not outside you know, the realms of possibility, but it'd be, you'd be very, very lucky, I think, to um, be able to find evidence of yeah, human DNA there that you could link to a particular individual. Talking to Jeremy, one phrase kept echoing in my mind. It's something that both Vince Dempsey and Shorty Dubois mentioned occasionally over the years and with the utmost confidence. They will never find the bodies. They will never find the bodies. 
I studied that little jar of samples taken from the Morgan Park site so often that the clods of earth and pale, porous, lightweight fragments of whatever substance began to blur. Jeremy said that after 50 years, you'd expect to find intact bones. Another forensic expert I spoke with said the bones would most likely be in fragments. I was confused. And that remained the case until I had a casual conversation over the phone with Vince's former apprentice, Warren Wazza MacDonald. Wazza recalled Vince being obsessed with the Australian movie Snowtown, about the bodies in the barrel murders outside Adelaide in the 1990s. In that horrific case, more than 10 corpses were recovered, many of them in acid in barrels stored in an old bank vault. According to Wazza, Vince keenly discussed how the Snowtown murderers tried to dispose of the bodies and pointed out the scientific flaws in their methods, particularly when it came to their use of acid. The Snowtown killers, Vince reckoned, got it all wrong by using the incorrect type of acid necessary to fully break down a human corpse. But that phrase, they will never find the bodies. Is that what Vince did to Barbara, Vicky and Leanne? Did he use acid on their remains? Would nobody ever find the bodies because there were no bodies? From Mushka Studios, I'm Matthew Condon, and this is Ghostgate Road. In this episode, Vince is finally captured by two relentless cold case homicide squad detectives for the McCulkin killings. Tries to eliminate witnesses against him even from behind bars, and unwittingly triggers a new inquest that may finally answer whether or not he was behind the notorious Whiskey-A-Go-Go firebombing. We need people with information about this to point us in the right direction. Even if it's to locate where the girls and their mother are either buried or, you know, were disposed of. Even if it's we only achieve that to give closure to the family. Good evening. Cold case homicide detectives have widened their investigation into the abduction of a Brisbane family 40 years ago. As we've learned in this podcast, Vince was intensely investigated by police in the late 1970s, and then in 1980, following a coronial inquest, he and his accomplice, Shorty Dubois, were charged with the murder of the McCulkins. To the intense frustration of the victims' families, those charges were later dropped. In 1985, Vince was convicted of heroin offences in New South Wales and sentenced to 10 years in prison. During his incarceration, his relationship with his long-suffering partner, Diane Pritchard, evaporated. Di settled in far northern New South Wales 
and hooked up with another partner. According to witnesses, she even cut down on the grog and tried to make a decent home for her son and a new daughter. As for Vince, he was released from jail in 1991 and he went back to his old hometown of Warwick, where he played the role of local farmer. It was the noble profession of his forebears who had farmed the area since the 1850s. But forget cattle and grain, Vince was interested in breeding alpacas. He had some crazy theory that he could genetically produce alpacas out of camels. And there was more than meets the eye when it came to Vince the man of the land. It just so happened that he was an expert in more than just alpaca wool. He in fact grew bush marijuana or cannabis cultivated outside rather than indoor or hydroponically. It was generally accepted by those in the know that bush dope was weaker than other varieties. But Vince's bushweed had an excellent reputation. And make no mistake, his operation was highly sophisticated. To the extent that he had buried a full-sized shipping container with its own custom-made trapdoor and air vents on a property outside Warwick. In it, he stored his shrink-wrapped cannabis, money and sometimes weapons. Vince often referred to the container as his dungeon. As for his dope, Vince was, as always, meticulous in his farming methods, installing elaborate water reticulation systems and using choice fertiliser. Following the seasonal cycle of planting and harvesting, Vince and the men and women he employed on the illegal crops would, after a hard day's work, sit around a campfire and drink rum and beer and tell tall stories. Vince reminisced about the past. His bodgy period in the 1950s, Boggo Road in the 1960s, working in Sydney for the big gangsters and being the enforcer overseeing the Brisbane brothel scene in the 1970s. One New Year's Eve on the crop, a young woman, we'll call her Alice, who was there with Wazza McDonald, was yarning with Vince. A few days earlier, Vince, Wazza and Alice had been heading for the town of Ingleburn, southwest of Warwick, and Vince had pointed to the left off the highway and said, that's the dead centre of Warwick. Alice didn't know what he was talking about, but this dead centre, this sacred site, was brought up again at the crop party. Alice later told police. We were talking that night and Vince asked me if I knew anything about the Whiskey A Go-Go and I said I didn't know anything about it. Someone mentioned a sacred site and I didn't know what that was about. About an hour later, Wazza and I were out by the fire and I asked Wazza about the sacred site and asked him if that was the crop. Wazza said no, that dead centre of Warwick that Vince referred to, that's where the three girls were buried. I asked what three girls and Wazza told me about the Whiskey A Go-Go girls. We went back inside and I said, tell me more about the Whiskey A Go-Go because I had never heard of it. Vince told me about the fire at the pub in the city and that the cops tried to pin Vince for it. So I asked Vince, so you actually killed those girls? 
and Vince didn't say anything. He just he just had a smirk on his face. The crops were high-security affairs. During the three-month period when the cannabis was harvested and dried, crop workers were not allowed to leave the property. All mobile phones had to be surrendered. Everyone from pickers to the senior hierarchy, which included Dennis, Poss, Ide, Wazza, and of course Vince, had to use false names. Vince called himself Tom. But he had a new nickname amongst the pickers. He was known as Swami, the man who could make people disappear. How many on the crops, apart from the captains, knew of Vince's murderous past? Some, like Alice, had never even heard of the Whiskey-A-Go-Go massacre, let alone the McCulkins, Simon Vogel, the Clockwork Orange Gang. But there was one constant and unchanged through-line that stretched across the decades. Psychopath Vince was and remained a sexual predator, even aged in his 70s. How can we forget the young woman Vince raped in the bushes, followed by his Shakespearean performance, standing on the tree stump in the early 1960s? On one crop, Vince had hired a cook. Let's call her Marion. Vince knew Marion well. She'd fallen on hard times, and he gave her the job. One day, he drove Marion over to his alpaca farm on the outskirts of Warwick. He wanted to show her a new office he'd built at the back of the shed. He told her that he had a pet mouse he wanted her to see. They went into the office. She later told police what happened next. He grabbed me in a bear hug and he started rubbing his hips up against me. I noticed that he was getting an erection. I tried to pull away and he grabbed both hands. He then put my hands together and held me with one hand. I was surprised about how strong he was for an old guy. He pulled out his penis and I knew what he was going to do. I was struggling and saying, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. He pushed me against the lounge, front forward, so that my hands went down on the lounge. He pulled down my jeans and raped me from behind. He continued for some time. Then he stopped and pulled my jeans right down and lay me on the lounge and lay on top of me. He said, I can only come this way. When he was finished, he got up and I got dressed. I didn't know what to do or say. I was afraid of him. I got dropped to the crop by Vince after he raped me. It was like nothing had happened for him. And around the campfire, Vince didn't hold back on his enemies. I had no idea until years later that I was actually one of them and that I'd featured in one of Vince's fireside chats. Way back in 2011, I had published yet another newspaper story on the murder of Barbara, Vicky and Leanne McCulkin in 1974, this infuriating cold case that had never been solved. I couldn't let the girls be forgotten. And Vince hit the roof. I was on a serial killer's hit list. Warren was a McDonald, Vince's apprentice, from the early 1990s to about 2006, 
witnessed the diatribe. You told me a story how I had published a story about the McCulkins, I think in like 2011. Yes, in the Courier Mail. In the Courier Mail, and it was talked about around the fire, the campfire, and Vince went off his nut. Yes, that's correct. What happened? Your article come up in the fucking paper about the McCulkins. Yeah. He said, if I could get my hands on that cunt, fucking everything, just won't fucking leave it alone, that cunt. <laughs> Oh my God! And and so did anyone? Did he read the story, or did someone um, mention my name, or how did he know it was me? Ah, um, it was in the paper. We had copies of the paper, the newspaper. Yeah. yeah. And he had a look at it. Yes, absolutely. Wow. And he was absolutely. not. And he was upset. And yes, and um, the reason I remember so so clearly is because it changed my tact of what I was doing. Vince wanted me to throw some money in to buy this block of land. Mm. We had, had this block of land in town and it was a great deal. And throw in, and I was going to go in halves with him. Mm. And because of that conversation and because of that article in the paper and because of all that bullshit, I backed out and said, no, look, no, I don't want to do it. Because wow. I said, well, it was if he gets pinched and goes to go up for a murder, mm. although I'm going to lose money and I'm going to lose my land and all this. So I thought, ah, oh, fuck, I don't need that shit. Wow. And Dad said, and Dad said smart move. Smart so, move. Yeah, smart move. Get away from it. Yeah. So, so um, yeah, that, and that's why I remember it so clearly because it was a massive point in my life that I fucking made a massive decision. Mate, I'm, gl- I'm, but, gl- I'm glad I could have a helping hand there. Oh, look, no worries at all. Thanks for that. <laughs> Mate, so can you just repeat to me again what he said about me? This is what is unnerving me. Okay. Um, I get my hands on that cunt. He said, fucking cunt, we should cunt and shut up. It's just some fucking right shit. I don't think I should be laughing at this point. Oh, look, it's... Well, well mate, we're, we're both in the same position. He doesn't like both of us now. That's right. Uh, that's <laughs> Vince also railed against the crooks who'd betrayed him, the disloyal women, not to mention the squiggly tails, the bloody coppers. As it turned out, Vince had good reason to still be wary of the police. In early 2014, Two determined Brisbane cold case detectives, Mick Dowie and Virginia Gray, began to pursue Vince. Two officers committed to making that one final push to try and solve the McCulkin mystery. And unbeknown to Vince, some of his underworld associates and a former lover were set to risk their lives, break the criminal code of silence and turn against him in a court of law. That former lover was Kerri-Ann Scully. In her early thirties, when she went to live with Vince in Warwick for about six months in late 2011. Kerri-Ann was the daughter of Carolyn Scully, who had also had a relationship with Vince, as well as Shorty Dubois. It was an incestuous group. Carolyn's brother was Tommy Hamilton of the Clockwork Orange Gang. 
Kerry-Ann was a chronic drug addict at the time she hooked up with Vince, and she would later tell police that he was a, quote, serial killer and that his nickname was the Angel of Death. She said Vince told her he was good for the McCulkin killings and 33 murders in total. She told police. He boasted about it. Very proud of himself. Very sure of himself. You know, when you do something and get away with it, you think, yeah, I am untouchable. If you try and arrest him, he will kill as many of you as he can. The great killer, Vince Dempsey, the old school gangster, the most feared man in the Australian underworld, the child rapist and murderer, was about to go down. The official renewed police hunt for Vince was codenamed Operation Avow, and Detective Dowie made the police objectives clear in a press conference in early 2014. This is not a reopening of an investigation. This investigation has been open the entire time. We don't close cold case investigations. We need people with information about this to point us in the right direction. Even if it's to locate where the girls and their mother are either buried or, you know, were disposed of. Even if it's we only achieve that to give closure to the family will be an enormous rewarding experience for us and all the investigators that go before us. It's worth speculating what the Warwick locals made of the return of their troubled son, Vince, to his hometown, virtually unchanged since he roamed the streets, wreaking havoc as a young bodgie in the 1950s and 60s. What did they think when they saw him wandering through Rose City shopping world off Palmerin Street, or buying supplies for his alpaca farm with its treeless paddocks and sheds just off the main road into town? What did they make of him paying for everything with cash? They couldn't know that he'd been growing marijuana year after year and was never once troubled by the attention of police. They couldn't know he had a full-size shipping container buried on his property where he stored dope, money and guns. They couldn't know that on one of his properties he had buried a sealed 44-gallon drum and that in that drum was the full 2,000-page transcript of the 1980 inquest into the disappearances of the McCulkins, Tommy Allen and Margaret Grace Ward, for which Vince was the number one person of interest. One thing they did know was to keep their mouths shut about anything to do with Vince. They were aware of all the rumours that had been hovering over Warwick for decades, and now the bogeyman was back home. And absolutely nobody could have suspected that with the onset of middle age, Vince would start reminiscing a bit too much about the past. In some ways, his language was stuck in the Australia of the 1940s and 50s, riddled with rhyming slang. When he went to pick up the mail, he always said, I'm off to get the ginger ale but some of his memories from the past were suddenly not so quaint and sepia-tinged. 
back in the late 1990s, he made a remarkable admission to his young apprentice, Wasm McDonald. After some trouble on one of the drug crops, Wazza was driving Vince back into Warwick when they started talking about his life as a gangster. Right, and and you're in the ute just with him? Yeah, me and him are in the ute coming coming back from the, from the crop. We're going to, to Warwick and um, we're talking about Jack. And fucking with a big fat mouth. He used to call him the big fat mouth. And he said, um, you need a notch on your gun. Mm. And I said, fuck, what do you mean? He said, you need a kill. He said, when I was your age, I had several muscles on my gun. Mm. Fuck, wow. And, um, do you believe him? Come up bit. Oh, shit, yes. Mm. Of course, yeah. Mm. I, don't, I don't want to come up without the McCulkins. And he, he said, he said he killed him and Shorty raped him. Shorty, Shorty was nothing but a pedophile. Uh, no, nothing but a rapist. Wazza later believed Vince was trying to groom him to shape him as a killer the master's apprentice. He said Vince was matter-of-fact when he confessed to murdering the McCulkins. But in the, in the ute, he had no qualms in making a confession to the murders. No, none whatsoever. Why do you think he felt so comfortable that he could do that? Well, obviously he trusted you. Mate, he had me under his wing and, um, and then he gave me some great advice after it. Mm. Real cool. Wasn't upset, wasn't... Yeah. Real cool. He just said... Um, if you want to live a long and healthy life, never repeat a word. And I said, well, that's easy. Mm. And we, we just got on ever since. Like, we never, like, we didn't sit down every five minutes and fucking talk about it. It was a confession to a triple murder. And it would come back to haunt Vince in a very big way. In early 2014, Operation Avow swung into action, and it didn't take long for Vince to appreciate what was coming for him. Sensing danger, he bolted. The official police affidavit in the case states. It will be alleged that on becoming aware of strategies in the renewed investigation in March 2014, Odempsey altered his life patterns. He told one party that he was going and she would not see him again. Shortly after learning of the extent of this investigation, O'Dempsey left his home and commenced disposing of assets. He sent money and instructions to one witness and was gone for some months. None of his friends or family knew his location. Operation Avow officers also approached Shorty Dubois. He declined to be interviewed, telling them they should know he would never talk to police. The word was that Shorty had been offered immunity if he'd rat on Vince about the McCulkins but he decided to stay staunch. He wouldn't break the code. Vince, on the other hand, headed into the bush, into the country he knew so well in and around Ghostgate Road, Upper Freestone, and the little town of Yangan, the fields and forests and creeks and caves that surrounded the flat-topped buttress that was Mount Sturt. He grew a beard, lived off the land. He had expert bush skills and had had an intimate knowledge of the landscape since he was a boy. Vince later told associates that his time on the run was valuable. 
He was more dangerous to police and the citizens of Warwick if nobody knew where he was. The killer lurking in the shadows. The angel of death who could come for you in the night and snatch you away. He had a fearsome reputation and he used it to his advantage. There was a sighting of Vince in the village of Yangan, not far outside Warwick, and close to the original O'Dempsey farm at Upper Freestone. Someone thought they'd seen him skulking about town like a ghost before vanishing again. It was predictable of Vince. He always relied on what he knew. He was a creature of habit. The police were close. He needed time to think. But winter flushed him out. And by July of that year, he was back in Warwick. He reasoned to himself that the heat was off. He stayed with friends and associates throughout the Darling Downs region, watching over his shoulder. He took note of the number plates of suspicious vehicles. He never drove or walked near CCTV cameras. He never talked to anyone in built-up areas in case there were bugs. However, the juggernaut that was Operation Avow could not be stopped. Then, in the first two weeks of August, the noose tightened. A series of property raids by police began, including one on Vince's alpaca farm. Uh, yesterday, uh, as a result of continued investigations into the Carl Case homicide investigation for the McCulpin family, we executed a search warrant on Willowvale Road, uh, Massey, which is by Warwick, uh, in conjunction with searching for evidence in relation to uh, that investigation. On our arrival, uh, we were assisted by Australian Federal Police uh, currency dogs and drug dogs. During a search of that property, we've located a large quantity of cannabis, well in excess of 30 kilos. But our investigations are still continuing in relation to that person and this property. Another raid followed within hours. Good evening. Cold case homicide detectives have widened their investigation into the abduction of a Brisbane family 40 years ago. Late today, they raided another property near Warwick. Lexi Hamilton-Smith is at police headquarters. And Lexi, what's the link? Well, Sharon, detectives who were looking at the murder of Barbara McCulkin and her two daughters today raided the property of an associate of one of the persons of interest in the case. His name is Vince O'Dempsey. His property was searched yesterday. Now, police discovered more than $300,000 in cash, as well as barrels of cannabis and a caravan full of the drug. With Operation Avow, Vince would grow to learn he wasn't just facing a platoon of adversaries, but a full-blown regiment. He had made an error of judgement. The heat was not off. It had only increased during his stint in the bush. Now he was in a mad scramble in and around Warwick, trying to find out who had given police witness statements against him. During much of the first half of 2014, Queensland's Crime and Corruption Commission, the powerful anti-corruption watchdog, 
had been bringing friends and associates of Odemsi into its so-called star chamber. This is a secret room inside the Commission's headquarters in Brisbane. It is much like a small, windowless courtroom, but without a public gallery, where witnesses are interrogated by lawyers and Crime and Corruption Commission staff. Potential witnesses who refuse to attend the coercive hearings can be jailed. One lie to the Star Chamber and it's straight to jail on perjury charges. Witnesses are forbidden to even mention that they've been in there. Vince's trusted inner circle and his criminal friendships going back to the 1960s began to crack. Then Warren was a McDonald, who hadn't worked for Vince for years, was summoned by Vince to a clandestine meeting in Dead Horse Lane, a stone's throw from Morgan Park and the old cricket ground outside Warwick, not far from what may just be Vince's private graveyard. The place where I collected a jar full of material from a grave-shaped depression in the earth that might ultimately be human bone fragments. Vince was starting to panic, and he'd run out of people he thought he could trust. I wanted to ask you about that final meeting at Dead Horse Lane. Yes. I mean, you'd been out of um, out of Vince's business for a while then. Yes. What what happened? How how did he arrange it? Why did he go to that specific location? We we had meetings. He was running around making sure all the witnesses were keeping their mouths shut. Then slowly everybody was uh, released for company, hard and fast. Mm. And my job was to find. Do you know where the witnesses are? So he so called on you, your old friendship or relationship. Um, yes. What, and you, he called you to a meeting at night? Yes. What time of night was it? Mate, most of them was, the first, was early in the morning, at four, about 4 o'clock in the morning. Yep. Um, and then the last one was at night at the Dead Horse Lane. And had you heard of Dead Horse Lane or knew of it in relation to Vince before that? Uh, yes, and Dead Horse Lane, um, uh, we've been there a couple of times. Why do you think he chose that spot? I mean, I know it's remote, but, but why? Yeah, there? Mate, remote. yeah, there's nobody about there, mate. And there's a fence bush land there, so you can, you know, you can pull up and there's no one to do without you there. And as we know now, it's not far from Morgan Park, is it? Yeah, that is correct. Because Morgan Park backs onto Leslie Dam. That's right. So this was a place, as you said, he was comfortable meeting you there in Dead Horse Lane. Very, very comfortable. Did you fear for your life going to that meeting? I had a knife in my boot. Really? Yes. What sort of knife was it? Oh, just a just a real sharp one. Mm. Um, like a little red dagger sort of thing. Wow. It's all over the Yeah, I did just because with everything I knew, then I thought to myself, well. I wonder if he's going to start tidying witnesses up. So if I, if I go, I'm a chance of getting tidied up, or if I don't go, then he's going to think I've, I've rolled on him. That's right. So I went. So I went. And ha- how did he seem? Do you remember how he seemed, his demeanour um, at that meeting? Because it was the last meeting you guys ever had, wasn't it? That's correct. And, um, no, he was worried. He, he said to me, we're going to have to hit the toe because um, 
He said, they're, they're not far off me now. He said, the, the coppers are far off me now. Mm. And, I was, and I said, mate, look, let's get out of here. Let's go. I said, I don't get fuck, let's go. I said, oh, for Christ's sake, we've got to get out of here. Mm. And then he said, if I go, he said, everyone will shut their mouths up and that'll fucking stop and talking. A week after that secret meeting in Dead Horse Lane, time had run out for Vince and Shorty. Good evening. Warwick man Vincent O'Dempsey is tonight behind bars, remanded in custody after facing Brisbane Magistrates Court today charged over a 40-year cold case murder. An extensive police investigation resulted in his arrest on Saturday, charged with the murder of Barbara McCulkin and her two daughters in 1974. 40 years after Barbara McCulkin and her two daughters, Leanne and Vicky, went missing from their Brisbane home, two men are now in custody, charged with their murders. 76-year-old Vincent O'Dempsey from Warwick is one of them. He and Gary Dubois from Torben Lee face Brisbane Magistrates Court today. Both are charged with three counts of murder, deprivation of liberty and other serious offences. Their arrests were the result of an extensive investigation. A full review of the McCulkin case started in January. It had been such a long road, a road that stretched back four decades to a tiny, run-down wood and tin workers' cottage in Dorchester Street, South Brisbane, before colour television, before mobile phones, before CCTV and DNA. So many good detectives had travelled that road and come up with nothing. More accurately, what they did find never got any traction. Nothing stuck to Vince. Many had asked the same puzzling question for years. How could this man literally get away with murder? Alan Marshall was one of those detectives. So tell me then about your reaction to the news when O'Dempsey and Dubois were arrested in 2014. For the murder oh, of Barbara and the well, girls. Well, how did I feel about that? I was ecstatic. How um, did you hear the news? Um, okay, I got a uh, telephone call from somebody saying that it was going to happen, and um, and I don't even recall who it was. But my first reaction was uh, I just about jumped for joy, and I at that time I had a motorhome. I was travelling around Australia. I had a big uh, what do you call it, Winnebago, long reach, 32 foot long, with all the bells and whistles on the back. And uh, I promptly went down and bought a bottle of whiskey. Fantastic. Best bottle I could buy. Do you know, remember where you were? Yeah, it was here. It was here? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was parked at the back of Seagulls, I think, from memory. And did uh, you have a toast to Trevor? Uh, Trevor's not far from them. It, it, with all this. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, uh, as I say, it was sad that, you know, he lived through the rest of his life and never ever knew that there was going to be a, a finality about everything, you know. And while Vince and Shorty were in custody, there was still a long way to go for police. First, there was the committal hearing, then the actual murder trials. The odds of successful convictions were slim at best. Look at what cold case police had to overcome. 
For starters, the case was 40 years old. There were no bodies. There was no definitive crime scene. Many potentially important witnesses were long dead, and the alleged murderers were saying nothing. A full-blown inquest on the back of Detectives Marshall and Maneri's exhaustive investigation saw murder charges against Vince and Shorty dropped 34 years earlier. But this time around, police had some brand new shiny weapons at their disposal. This time, they had three vital witnesses. Peter Hall, Wazza McDonald, and Vince's former lover, Kerry-Ann Scully, who made the decision to break the criminal code of silence to tell the court what they knew about Vince and the fate of the McCulkins. Three courageous people, three genuine modern-day heroes who chose to finally break this cycle of death and put Vince away for good. Former Clockwork Orange gangster Peter Hall had effectively severed ties with Queensland when he headed south after the Whiskey firebombing in 1973 and settled in New South Wales. He did not escape the attention of the law. In the 1980s, he shot a man he said had raped a female friend of his. The victim survived and Peter did some serious lag time. But after that, his days as a criminal were over. He married, had children. He established a successful business for himself, conducting wine tours through the beautiful Hunter Valley wine region northwest of Newcastle. Then the past literally turned up on Peter Hall's doorstep. Now, if we fast forward to 2014, Peter you know, Dowie, Mick Dowie approaches you and um, you say initially you know you know nothing that can help them. But yep. then you have a change of heart. And I'm interested in what made you change your mind. Um, a couple of things. It's, I guess I realised that staying true to the code, no matter what, you don't give anyone up no matter what, especially... And, Shorty, I'd be given him up, which at the time I thought, you know, he was a friend. That um, I'd, I'd been married for a while, I had two kids, and that changed you. Mm. I, um, I hadn't committed a crime since I'd got married. As for Wasser McDonald, he was looking down the barrel of a lengthy prison sentence for his involvement with Vince in the bush marijuana crops. But he, too was a changed man. Wazza is intelligent, he has drive and is not afraid of hard work, and most importantly, he has a conscience. He had a lot of information to offer police, but above all, and as a father himself, he wanted justice for the McCulkin children. Now, mate, what I wanted to ask you too, which is really important, because I've asked Peter Hall this as well, um, the decision to become a witness against Vince. Yes. I know you were facing your own 
potential difficulties in in jail. Yeah. But, but was it more than? I mean, just run me through if you can your rationale behind your decision to do that because it's a very big decision. Look, I, I think at the end of the day, being a being a parent myself and uh, and what those poor little kids would have went through, enough's enough. You've got to draw a line in the sand and. You know what they did to those four little kids, mate. That—that's why I crumbled. Mm. Had you heard uh, that others were turning on him as well? No, not turning on him. But I heard that um, uh, from him himself. He said the crime commission are conducting um, uh, the rounding everybody up, mm. and um, he, there's hundreds of witnesses been in there, hundreds. So he knew all about the crime commission and their and their secret hearings. Mm. And and was there any? I mean, you you were so close to him for a long time. You knew a hell of a lot. Yes. He he would have assessed your value as a witness. He won't, I mean, I know you said to me he once said you'd make a good witness. Yes. Which was prophetic. And, well, if you if you, you can look at that both ways now, sitting back looking at it, thinking, Jesus, he's probably. What was going through his head? Yeah, yeah. But that 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 is a scary one because at that stage we were in our prime and we we're all over the place. Mm. So um, he could have got me anywhere he wanted. That's right. But did you did you feel? I mean, Peter Hall said that he felt, you know, for years that you know, oh, you don't break the code of silence and blah blah blah. But um, there, there did come a point where, as you just said, a saturation point where enough's enough. Yeah. See, I, I, I pulled out of the, the whole crew and everything when um, after he raped that girl. The, uh, he had he raped her at the alpaca shed, and then then dropped her off, and she was supposed to be the cook. Yeah. And then that turned me right off, you know, and just and 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 knowing the you know not, not bagging her at all, but knowing her, you know, he, he could have asked a nice man, and she would have agreed. Mm, mm. Like he didn't didn't have, didn't have to forcefully do it. Mm. So. And that, that really turned me off him. I just thought, wow, and that, that will bring us all undone. And, and, and becoming a parent uh, myself, I, I don't know, something just clicks inside you and you think, well, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to do this anymore. Back in episode one of this podcast, I described sitting in court for Vince's committal hearing in late 2015, following his arrest. It was a surreal experience. It was the first time I had ever seen O'Dempsey in person, and it was a shock to be in the same room as him after so many years researching his life. At one point, our eyes briefly locked And I wondered in that moment if he recognised me as the journalist who kept writing about the McCulkin disappearances and whether or not he'd linked me to the 2011 feature story that had been debated so fiercely around the drug crop campfire and set Vince off. In crime investigations, it's possible to get so embedded in the story of a criminal's life that you can get swept away by tall tales and end up caught in their myth, a myth often of their own making. O'Dempsey was like that. 
I remember interviewing one person who knew him in Warwick in the 1950s and 60s, and he said to me, you'd ask yourself, is he human? It was like he stepped out of a fairy tale. Seeing Vince in the flesh poured iced water over that fairy tale. He looked dangerous, hard, evil, and very, very real. During the committal hearing, a taped interview between Kerry-Ann Scully and a detective was played to the court. She said, quote, He's a hitman. He's a serial killer. I've known that since I was a child. Back in those days, there were real gangsters, and he was at the top of the top. He takes you in the middle of the night like an angel, and you're gone for good. It would be another 18 months into the late autumn of 2017 before Vince was put into a prison van at the Wacol Correctional Centre southwest of Brisbane and driven daily into the CBD along Milton Road and down into Roma Street and the Supreme Court for one of the biggest murder trials of the last half century. We have heard throughout this podcast about one of Psychopath Vince's most enduring and terrifying habits. Since the early 1960s, when he first got a taste of jail for nearly bashing a police officer to death on the streets of Warwick, his survival has relied on leaving no witnesses to any of his crimes. Why would that change in the 21st century? Unbelievably, while awaiting trial on the McCulkin murders, Vince arranged to have his apprentice, Wazza McDonald, knocked or murdered before he could stand up in court and give evidence against him. You heard that correctly. Vince, then in his late 70s, organised a hit from jail on his former trusted lieutenant, Wazza. But he put a contract on you, didn't he? Well, eventually. <laughs> God bless him. Was that when? When did he? Do you think he organised that? Oh, mate! It was after the committal, before the trial. Wow! So he did it from jail. Yeah, he did it from jail. Oh God, yeah. And it was dead. It was dead serious. It wasn't a joke, was it? No fear. No. No fear. The police took it extremely serious. And what was the arrangement as you understood it? Uh, they were to get me where I had my coffee in the morning and I had my breakfast at the Caltex in the morning. Yep. And there's a back lane there, but that's where they were to get me. And uh, happy not. Do you think you came close? No. No. Um, the police were too, too quick now. Yep. Despite all of this frantic police work, the hunt for and capture of Vince, the turning of witnesses, the secret star chamber interrogations, and the scrupulous gathering of evidence, there is still a vacuum in this story. And that vacuum 
is the physical whereabouts of Barbara, Vicky, and Leanne McCulkin's bodies. Let's ask the same question that we did at the beginning of this episode. Would nobody ever find the bodies because there were no bodies? I was initially skeptical that O'Dempsey or somebody on his instructions had removed the McCulkin bodies from their original graves. Then Waza McDonald told me about Vince's obsession with and seeming expertise in the use of acid. Vince's discussion with you about acid. Acid, yes. Because in, in that 1975 letter he sent to Peter Hall asking him to blow up the Gayton sisters' house in Dorchester Street... Yes. He also made a recommendation to Shorty or whoever to exhume the McCulkins and break them down in acid, and he instructed them on how to do it. Yes. So what what was your conversation with Vince about the use of acid? Okay. Um, it was a they got brought up about the, the Snowtown murders. Yeah. And um, and he was uh, like a staple Vedenia, he was fucking carrying on about um, they've used the wrong acid. They use hydrochloric acid instead of sulfuric acid. Mm. And um, now we had a couple of conversations about acid. And um, when he told me that you needed a, a steel bathtub and had to have a steel plug, mm. and that if you can't have a rubber plug because the acid eats it away. Mm. And the sludge, when the body's turned to sludge, you've got to get rid of it in tidal waters, don't throw it in a dam. Yeah. And um, and you've got to cut up the bathtub and get rid of it. So there's no evidence. And what about the teeth? You got, yes, you had to grind the teeth. You had to, had to grind the teeth to get them away because the acid didn't eat all the teeth or there's always something left. Right. And so did you think he was speaking from the point of view of having watched a movie or read a book or that he knew how to do this in physically? No, no, that's, that's an easy one to answer, that one. That's an odd one. He, he, he's done it. Like an odd one, mate. Yeah. So he was talking from the point of view of someone who has done this to a human body? Absolutely. Yeah. And why did you get that feeling as opposed to someone who was, sh- like, showing off? Because the, uh, Vince never talked shit. Mate. He always... He, 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 never, he never talked shit. Mm. He always was very firm, staunch, fucking tough guy. Yeah. So nothing was theoretical or airy fairy. Oh fucking hell no! No way in the wide world. Mm. No way in the wide world. But yeah, I, I do believe. I do believe the acids. Um, that's that's what he's done. So here we are, about to enter the final episode of Ghostgate Road. And the deeper we've delved into this story, into Vince's mind, the more we've come to expect that in his world, the unreal shockingly becomes real. The unthinkable, highly possible. And acts of cruelty and depravity, so commonplace that you become numb just to cope. Bodies, acid, knives, murder. 
What if the graves at Morgan Park aren't graves at all? What if they're just another master illusion from the Swami? You have to wonder, will this nightmare ever end? Ghostgate Road is produced by Wooshka Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Visit ghostgateroad.com for additional material and a full list of credits and search for the official Ghostgate Road discussion group on Facebook.